brothers and sisters, comrades and friends, welcome to Weekends. I am your host, Nando Vila, and I am joined, as always, with Anna Kasparian. Anna, a, a remarkable thing happened yesterday. We were doing TYT. Um, we were dunking on Charlie Kirk. It was, we were having a lot of fun. And then we got a bit of breaking news live on the air. What happened? Right. So um, news broke that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, Supreme Court justice, uh, died at the age of 87. She died from pancreatic cancer. And she had battled cancer five times prior uh, to her passing. So, you know, she was a fighter and she uh, wanted to work um, as long as humanly possible on the Supreme Court. I know there's a lot of um, critique toward her decision to do that. Um, which, you know, we can talk about in a little bit. But her granddaughter uh, spoke to the press soon after news broke and said that uh, there was one wish that Justice Ginsburg had. And here's the direct quote. My most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed. And so, you know, I think it's important to have a conversation about whether her wish uh, can even come to fruition, because the fact of the matter is uh, the Republican Party understands power. They will do anything and everything necessary to um, utilize the power they have and and accumulate more of it. And more importantly, Republicans control the Senate. And so all the professional, well-paid commentators who are putting out tweets about how, oh my God, these Republicans are so hypocritical because of what happened to Merrick Garland, which was, of course, um, uh, Obama's Supreme Court nominee who was blocked by Senate Republicans. Yeah. Where have you guys been? Like, that's your expert commentary? Congratulations. I I, I don't really know what else to say. Go ahead. You know, I I, I just think that, you know, even... You know, even if we like on the left weren't kind of yas queening RBG all the time, this was still kind of like the nightmare scenario. Um, you know, it, there's like some basic kind of liberal um, planks that you know need to be defended, mainly uh, reproductive rights, and you know this this kind of really feels like it can pave the way to something meaningful on that front. And I think I think people were 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 scared. I mean, I think people are scared, and um, I understand that fear, you know, it just shows how weak our system is, that it's like incredibly dependent on this one lady just hanging on by a thread for years. And everyone's just kind of, I mean, every time news broke that she was like hospitalized for cancer, you know, like everyone's just kind of biting their nails because we're literally just dependent on this one person. And I think it shows just the weakness of the system, the weakness of, of, of the liberal response to the system, right? You know, like you said, Republicans are ruthlessly focused on power and do not suffer vanity or fools in their pursuit toward that end. You know, they don't care about appearing hypocritical. They don't care. They don't care about, like, respecting someone's legacy. You know, like, I think, like, a lot of liberals, like, were probably afraid to basically tell RBG, like, you need to retire, like in the final, like, you know, it was a kind of like a very, it'd be nice if you retired, maybe, but like, we don't want to like force your hand, you know, you've, you're a hero to us, like you, you can do whatever you want, but like, it'd be nice. Um, whereas like a Republican, like would get a call from, you know, whoever the, whoever the, the big bad boss is. And it's like, no, no, you, you gotta get out of there. Um, because this is too, this is bigger than you. This is more important than you. Um, and I think I would, I hope, I mean, I, I'm not too optimistic that, 
liberals would learn that lesson and at least in the near term put up a meaningful fight um, because there are things that maybe can be done. And it's true that Republicans control the Senate. It's true that if they really wanted to, they can ram someone through. But there are things that can make them think twice about it. Like if Biden came out strongly, like in some fantasy land, and if he came out strongly, said like, no, if, if they ran one, someone through, like the day I'm president, I'm packing, I'm like nominating six judges, you know, um, mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. Supreme Court. And they're going to be like all kind of Bernie Kratz. And like then, then maybe like they would, they would think about it. Um, but I doubt he's going to do that. So they're just going to Yeah, kind of- I mean, I've, I've had Michael's, Michael Brooks's voice in my head all day uh, because on one hand, I can imagine Michael telling me, don't say that on the show, don't say that on the show, because the one thing that really got under his skin was when people had like a defeatist attitude. But at the same mm-hmm. time, he was also someone who didn't believe in living in a, some sort of fantasy, right? Don't don't delude yourself. Don't live in this fantasy where you think that uh, these liberals who have been beyond feckless are going to do what it takes to block Donald Trump's nominee. Like, they're not. They're not. That's the truth. So I guess yeah. my message is less hopeful than people would want to hear, But this is where I'm at. It's because I recognize what the Democratic Party really is. I recognize that all these well-paid political pundits are idiots and think that (laughs) accusing someone of hypocrisy is somehow going to change the course of history. It's not. And, you know, here's one example. It's a video that's been um, floating around the Internet lately, uh, going viral. It's Lindsey Graham from, I believe, uh, 2016. This was after uh, the Republicans in the Senate effectively blocked the uh, Obama nominee, Merrick Garland. And so this is what Graham said then. When we come back from the video, I'll tell you what he's saying now. This is the last year uh, of a lame duck president. And if Ted Cruz or Donald Trump get to be president, they've all asked us not to confirm or take up a selection by President uh, Obama. So if a vacancy occurs in their last year, of their first term, guess what? You will use their words against them. I want you to use my words against me. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, whoever it might be, make that nomination. And you could use my words against me and you'd be absolutely right. We're setting a precedent here today, Republicans are, that in the last year at least of a lame duck eight-year term, I would say it's going to be a four-year term, that you're not going to fill a vacancy of the Supreme Court. And so today, uh, after Donald Trump made it clear that he's going to nominate someone as quickly as possible, and Mitch McConnell, of course, says that he's going to hold a vote as soon as possible, Lindsey Graham essentially tweeted something along the lines of, I can understand why they want to do that. Basically, greenlighting what's about to happen. And he doesn't care. Lindsey Graham doesn't care if you call him a hypocrite. If that's your political play, um, that is weak as hell. And it, it, they don't care. They don't. Ca- they want power. They know that power yeah. is more important than being offended by name calling. They don't care. <laughs> they don't care. Yeah. I mean, wake up. We no, need they, to grow up. It's just yeah, yeah. Go ahead. No, they've already come up with the the perfect kind of counter argument, right? And it's it's a terrifying one. They're they're basically saying um, you can't have an eight person Supreme Court this close to the election because if the election results are in doubt and it goes to the Supreme Court and there's a 4-4 tie, 
there's a constitutional crisis. You know, and it's like, first of all, they're already hinting at that they're probably planning on challenging the election results, course, um, regardless of what happens. But that's, yeah, they'll, they'll come up with some new argument. I mean, the last time with the Merrick Garland thing, they pulled out like some obscure like 1824 thing that like, you know, who, like they don't give it. They don't care. You know, like they really don't care. So like catching them with their pants down in the lie is not the own that you think it is. Like the, the own that that might get them there is a meaningful threat to pack the court. And um, this is one of those things that in liberal circles is kind of a big, big no-no because there's like the conventional wisdom that FDR tried that when the Supreme Court was blocking a lot of his New Deal things. He tried to pack the court and it became this huge national thing and it really stalled a lot of the New Deal reforms in his like in, in the second half of his presidency um, because like the, it was like, you know, you went too far with this court packing thing that's too radical. You know, he lost a lot of members in his own party and things like that, blah, 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 blah. That's like kind of the conventional wisdom in the liberal circles around packing the court. But like, guys, like that's the only thing. Like They're going to have a 6-3 majority for the... for. 30 years, they're going to, like, even the most tame yeah, reforms amazing. are going to get blocked by the court, you know? like No, le- yeah, definitely. And let's just talk about mindset for a second, and then I have one more um, incredible video for you guys. So think about the mindset of Republicans. The mindset for Republicans is, let's rationalize ways to win. The mindset for liberals is, let's rationalize ways to lose. Like, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. mindset. I mean, it's... It's 100%. the very first motivating factor in the decisions both parties make. And while Rep- Republicans, again, are hyper-focused on power and winning, liberals, Democrats are just like, uh, let's, let's list all the ways that we're going to fail. Let's think of all yeah. the different obstacles in front of us, and let's really pursue this um, with a defeatist mentality. I mean, that is a true defeatist mentality. So there's that side of, of Democrats. And then there's this talking point that blows my mind. David Gergen, who's actually an advisor to Nixon, so I feel weird saying he's on the Democrat side. But in the Trump era, you know, he sides with Democrats more often than not. And so he actually thinks that this could help energize uh, voters to basically help Biden win. Let's hear his argument, and I want to hear your thoughts, Nando. For all the obvious reasons, it's so brazenly contemptuous of fair play. It is so hypocritical that I think you're going to see that the, the Democrat, that the Republicans will pay a price at the polls this November over this issue. It is, I think, that, among other things, I think it makes it more likely that Donald, that uh, I think it makes it more likely that Joe Biden will win the election. It makes it more likely that the Democrats will take over the Senate. And if Biden is the president and the next year when he tries to heal things, I think it's going to make polarization even more poisonous, almost irreversible. Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, like insane. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that that is a delusional take, to say the least. I mean, David David Gergen is one of like the high priests of conventional wisdom, right? I mean, he's somehow still on the air after a bajillion years. Like, he probably hasn't said an interesting or insightful thing in his entire life. Um, just the most banal kind of inside the beltway analysis uh, you can imagine. Um Again, a lot of those people actually believe all that crap. But um, yeah, I mean, this idea, I mean, the only way that this becomes a meaningful political issue is if the Democrats make it a meaningful political issue, which they, they which I just don't, they don't, they don't operate in that way. They don't, they don't know how to mobilize 
around an issue like this, you know, like it's, it's just, I mean, maybe like, yeah, maybe there was like this big campaign to like really, uh, pressure, you know, Susan Collins or whatever, one of these like kind of moderate Republicans or Mitt Romney or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, and they maybe kind of get shaky in their boots if there is like a massive mobilization in their States that's like targeted and, and thing. And, but like, they're not like, they're not going to do that. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I don't know. Like, it's just, um, I don't think that voters, I don't think that voters punish politicians for hypocrisy almost ever, you know, especially on the right. Especially on the right, which is why I thought his yeah. statement was so insane. Like, oh no, these Republicans will be punished for being I, hypocrites. I Are remember, you? yeah, I remember we did the thing with, uh, uh, you know, with Merrick Garland. I promised myself <laughs> if we ever did that exact same thing, we would, <laughs> we would, yep, nope, uh, yeah, they don't, that's not, not gonna happen. We have 200,000 people who have died during this pandemic and voters haven't really punished Trump for yeah. it. Uh, yeah. When you really look at the numbers, um, his base is immovable. Uh, so I'm not even having a conversation about, you know, hip- hypocrisy, persuading them to leave Trump, please. Their own family members dropping dead during the pandemic doesn't persuade them <laughs> to support uh, to lose support for Trump. Um, but also, you're absolutely right in that Democrats don't know how to mobilize around an issue. Uh, even incredibly popular issues uh, that they can exploit for their own political gain and purposes. Tens of millions of Americans unemployed without health insurance during a pandemic, desperately seeking another round of stimulus. Democrats couldn't accomplish the next round of stimulus. You know, they don't even Nancy talk about Pelosi, it. They don't even talk about it. Nancy Pelosi passes the you know next round of stimulus and sits back and thinks that's all she needs to do. You know, she'd rather hold a press conference about a beauty salon that she thinks set her up for that whole mask situation, as opposed to holding a press conference to hold Republicans' feet to the fire, hold the Senate's feet to the fire when it comes to providing financial relief to Americans. Look, we need to get these feckless, useless, terrible Democrats out of office. Okay, we need to primary them. We need to challenge them. They don't represent us. They just don't. And anyone who's sitting back thinking like, oh, the leadership in the Democratic Party is going to do the right thing and they're going to fight for us. They don't even know what it means to fight because they're good. They're, as my brother would say, they're gooch. Like they're just sitting back, enjoying their nice, beautiful mansions while we're dealing with the consequences of the failures of this so-called opposition party. Yeah. So, well, yeah. it's funny you mentioned that, Anna. That's exactly what my commentary is about. But first, we should pay the bills, right? All right. Let's do it. Well, this show is brought to you every week by Verso Books. Now you can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more new books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off all books for as long as you are a subscriber. To celebrate their 50th anniversary and the launch of the book club, each member tier is 50% off for the first three months. The Comrade tier is now $20, and if you join in September, you'll get Climate Crisis in the Global Green New Deal, The Political Economy of Saving the Planet by Noam Chomsky and Robert Poland. Glitch Feminism, a Manifesto by Legacy Russell, Corona, Climate, Chronic Emergency, War Communism in the 21st Century by Andreas Malm, Care Manifesto, The Politics of Interdependence by The Care Collective, a new edition of The Groundings with My Brothers by Walter Rodney, plus you'll get eight additional ebooks. Yeah, verso. Nice. Do it. All righty. 
Well, should we, should we get started with the commentary, Zaina? Yes, and to a nod to some of our viewers, we will rebrand our commentary segments to something a little more clever than commentary, I promise. Right. <laughs> we just got to right. think of a name. Um, but Nando, I can't wait to hear yours, so let's do it. I'm going to call mine a hot take. Okay, well, <laughs> this week, the Twitterverse was ablaze after The Atlantic magazine dropped a hot new profile on progressive activist Sean McElwee. Now, if you're not on Twitter or just generally not extremely online, you've probably never heard of Sean McElwee before, which is probably for the best. But the response to the article revealed an important political fault line on the liberal left, and it's worth going deeper into what that means. Broadly speaking, there are two options for anyone that is hoping to pass any meaningful progressive left progressive, let alone socialist policies. One is the coalitional approach with the Democratic Party, and this is the one that Sean McElwee represents. The other is the confrontational approach. This is, broadly speaking, the position of most of the people in the Jacobin orbit, and I conclude myself in that. But as Jared Abbott pointed out in the pages of Jacobin, it's important to take the McElwee position seriously. And Abbott even admits that it is a compelling case for a number of reasons. So what is the coalitional strategy? Basically, it entails playing nice with the vast majority of the Democratic Party leaders, senators, congressmen, etc. The idea is that you primary vulnerable centrists only when you're absolutely sure to win. And once in power, you do your best not to alienate them, but to convince them that progressive policies are in their best political interests. The Atlantic profile describes a meeting between McElwee and Joe Biden's policy team. Quote, In their March meeting, McElwee and a colleague attempted to persuade the Biden team to endorse a kind of quasi-Green New Deal. Their hope, if the presumptive Democratic nominee took a stronger stance on climate change in particular, he could get more young people and progressives excited about his campaign. They urged the campaign to endorse a commitment to reaching net zero emissions by mid-century and to invest in low-income communities that are disproportionately affected by pollution. The Biden team was worried that moving left on climate would be all risk and no reward, but McElwee assured them that it would be both popular and good policy. And here's the important part. They didn't extract much in the way of immediate commitments, but McElwee told me after the meeting that he had a longer-term plan. Fair enough. They were heard, and they didn't get any firm commitments, but at least they were in the room. And McElwee argues that a lot of left-wing ideas simply aren't popular. Popular, And you have to be realistic about that. You just got to look at the hard numbers and then run on those policies you support that are actually popular, like, say, childcare benefits, and not something unpopular, like, say, abolishing ICE, which, ironically, McElwee himself famously pushed incessantly just a couple of years ago. And that's actually true to an extent. But there are two problems with that approach. One is that a poll here and there doesn't really paint an an accurate picture of what is popular. To get a better understanding, you have to look at several polls over time. The Atlantic Profile points out that that according to Sean McElwee's own polling firm, Data for Progress, the polling offers clear lessons, McElwee argues. Instead of a carbon tax, candidates should talk about investing 100% clean energy, an idea that 51% of respondents favored. They would do well to campaign heavily on paid family leave, which received 60% support. And instead of championing Medicare for all which according to his firm is at 40% support, leftist candidates who need to win over Republicans and moderates should push to expand Medicaid and, quote, motherfuck the pharmaceutical industry. Translation, this is according to the writer of the profile, revoke patent rights on the most expensive drugs and approve government manufacturing of generics. 
an inspiring political message if there ever was one. So yeah, that's okay. That's data for progress's poll about Medicare for all. But here's another poll that says that a very nice 69% of voters support Medicare for all. And that furthermore, that support has remained, quote, consistently strong over the past two years. So who's to know? But let's grant that it's better to run on popular things than unpopular things. That's obvious. No one can disagree with that. But here is where the second, and I would argue more crucial problem with the coalitional approach comes into play. How do you hold elected leaders accountable once they are in office? What McElwee and others who believe in this approach, like Justice Democrats Walid Shaheed, often refer to the left as being, quote, junior partners in a coalition. There's only one problem with this in the context of the United States. The junior partners in a coalition have essentially zero leverage to force the senior partners in the coalition to do anything. This language, the partners in a coalition, comes from parliamentary systems where it actually makes sense. Like in Spain, where I'm from, for example, the center-left party, PSOE, won the most seats in parliament, but short from an outright majority, which would give them enough to take power. So they needed to cut a deal with the far-left Podemos party in order to join forces and get a majority of the seats in parliament and then take power. In exchange for their support, Podemos, the junior partners in the coalition, extracted some concessions. Pablo Iglesias, the leader of Podemos, managed to become the deputy prime minister as well as a ministerial post. And they are able to keep the more conservative PSOE party somewhat honest because if they feel that PSOE, reminder, the senior partners in the coalition, get too conservative, they can withdraw their support and force new elections. And they've used this leverage to pass some decent reforms like an increased minimum vital income and are working on a tax on millionaires to fund the COVID recovery. But that leverage, the pulling out of the coalition and forcing new elections, doesn't exist in the United States. Once someone wins an election, they've got four years to do whatever the hell they want. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren will support Biden, but are unlikely to be rewarded for their efforts with a cabinet post, simply because Biden has no reason to give one to either of them. The left has no meaningful way to threaten Biden while he is in power. So the junior partner in the coalition will get a little lip service during the election and then be thoroughly ignored afterward. So what you ask, is the alternative. Well, the alternative is the confrontational approach. Basically, this position argues that the Democratic Party has bled working-class support, that its leadership, and for lack of a better term, brand, have become toxic outside of urban coastal enclaves, giving it a structural disadvantage in national politics. As Jared Abbott points out in his piece, the numbers are staggering. In 1982, nearly half of all working-class voters identified as Democrats But by 2018, that figure had fallen to less than a third, even as the Republican Party saw no uptick. But the left can't get in bed with the Republicans, so what is there to do? Well, basically, you keep trying the Bernie Sanders strategy of running as a sort of independent that is not wedded or tied to the Democratic Party. In electoral terms, this is Abbott speaking, in electoral terms, it entails building a primarily working class support base focused on non-voters and independents with weak partisan attachments to the Democratic Party, as well as working class Democratic partisans who feel sufficiently disillusioned with the party leadership to take a chance on insurgent primary candidates. The confrontation strategy could also be carried out at any level of government, depending on what resources are available. This approach 
by no means rules out the possibility of making strategic alliances with existing blocs in the Democratic Party coalition, like, for example, the decision of Bernie Sanders to caucus with congressional Democrats, despite his strong public denunciations of the Democratic Party over several decades, is, is a good example. In general, however, the confrontational strategy privileges electoral threat over persuasion and mutual accommodation. And that, very importantly, requires building institutions independent of the Democratic Party, no easy task, but an infrastructure that can help with things like fundraising, policy work, and much like data for progress, polling. These institutions would run candidates on the Democratic Party line, but refuse to accept things like funding from the DCCC and such. And these candidates would run on things that are broadly popular with working class voters like Medicare for all, taxes on the rich, collective bargaining rights, and so on, and then remain accountable to the independent institution for things like funding and logistical support. Should they prove unwilling to support the agenda they ran on, the institution would pull their support, and without support from the Democratic Party machinery, they would likely lose their seat. So it's a way to keep them accountable. And there's one major problem with this approach, admittedly, it hasn't really worked in recent years. Bernie did worse with rural white working class voters in 2020 than he did in 2016, and left-wing candidates have mostly done well in blue districts, and they have yet to meaningfully have any meaningful success in red districts, which is key to the strategy. It has, however, worked in the past. As Jared Abbott points out, the most successful examples of the confrontation strategy have come at the state level, most notably in North Dakota and Minnesota in the 1910s and 1920s. In North Dakota, the Nonpartisan League, NPL, successfully took over the Republican Party between 1916 and 1918 by creating an electoral organization distinct from the party. The organization used the primary system to wage an open electoral war against the Republican establishment in the state. And by 1918, as Richard Vallely describes, the NPL had seized control of the North Dakota government to an extent simply unknown in American state politics before or since then. Based on this extraordinary electoral success, the NPL in 1919 was able to push through wide-ranging reforms in education, healthcare, and other public services, even in the face of extreme oppositions from elites in the state. Abbott continues, in Minnesota, the NPL created an electoral organization to compete in the Republican primaries. It was so successful that it prompted Republicans to ban NPL candidates from running independent campaigns in the general election after first losing in the Republican primaries. Since Minnesota was effectively a one-party Republican state at the time, and since the NPL was already a powerful electoral force, in 1922, it chose to abandon its Republican primary strategy and instead create the Independent Farmer Labor Party. During its heyday in the 1920s and 1930s, the Minnesota FLP was able to elect three governors, four U.S. senators, and eight U.S. House of Representatives, in addition to securing majorities in the Minnesota state legislature. And in recent years, this strategy has worked just not on the left, but on the right. In many ways, the extraordinary success of the Tea Party was an example of how the confrontational approach to politics can pull squishy centrist members to your flank. The Tea Party targeted most of its ire on the Republican establishment running in opposition to what they called rhinos in the primary, famously knocking out Eric Cantor, who at the time was the second most powerful member of Congress. Once in power, the Tea Partiers stayed true to their extreme agenda, refusing to go along with the grand Obama-Boehner bargain for, uh, for not co- going far enough in cutting Social Security. Republicans began to worry more about primary challenges from the right than the general election. So the Tea Party has undoubtedly succeeding in pulling the Republican Party dramatically to the right. Of course, 
they had the advantage of billionaire financing from figures like the Koch brothers, and the left would encounter challenges, more challenges than they did as a result, but it's still an example of how the dynamic can work. So those are the two choices for the left, coalition or confrontation. Coalition is less risky, but with little chance of achieving any meaningful reforms. The confrontational approach is scary, but is the one with the potential to make the Democratic Party one of the working class, and therefore one that can deliver the type of reform that benefits the many, instead of the party of Halliburton Democrats, as Mark ha- Matt Carp says, and thus one that will never do anything other than diversify the board of Goldman Sachs and pass tax credits and Pell Grants to entrepreneurs who operate a business for four years in an underserved community. And back to McElwee. The kicker of that Atlantic article, which is supposed to be a massive own to the left, the writer says, late one evening in mid-July, I got a text from McElwee. Had I seen the Bloomberg scoop? Biden was about to announce a package of climate proposals advocated by some of the most progressive climate groups. The next day I watched as Biden, standing on a flag decorated stage in Wilmington, Delaware, peeled back his face mask and unveiled a new plan that would invest $2 trillion over four years to achieve 100% clean energy by 2035. The proposal would also guarantee that 40% of all clean energy funding goes to marginalized communities. McElwee had gotten what he wanted. Oh, great. McElwee had gotten what he wanted. I guess Joe Biden has promised to put some decent climate policy on his campaign website. But once he is in office, what will he do in the face of resistance? Will Biden hold the line and work to pass this quasi-Green New Deal? Or will he fold immediately? What can Sean McElwee do to force him to hold the line? The answer is nothing. That was... uh... (laughs) You're just so spot on. Um, and I love the historical references uh, you pointed to, especially when how uh, the more confrontational route uh, helps. Um, you know, it's certainly helped Republicans in the past. I think it could help the the left moving forward. And one thing that's become clear to me at a time when things seem so uncertain, unstable, and up in the air is that... The Democratic Party, corporate Democrats specifically, people like Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, and so-called moderate Democrats, aren't, we're not the same. We're not even close. Like, it's two different ideologies, and you need to know your enemies, right? Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are not our friends. They're not interested in working with us. The only time there might be a little bit of agreement policy-wise is when we're discussing social issues. That's what the Democratic Party has really latched onto for decades now in order to uh, differentiate themselves from the Republican Party. But make no mistake, when it comes to the bread and butter issues, the issues that matter um, in regard to our uh, material conditions, Democrats and Republicans have been in cahoots. Uh, They've been in cahoots for a while. They will continue to work together on these issues. One of the stories that broke just this week and got very little attention, we did cover it on TYT, though was how uh, Senate Democrats have completely backed away from reversing the Trump-era tax cuts for the wealthy. Because of course they have. They're wealthy themselves. They couldn't be more different, um, you know, in terms of their own wealth and their own lifestyles from working Americans and leftists. And so I, I agree with you. I mean, you mentioned how the confrontational approach is a little more risky than the coalition approach. Um, I mean, what's scarier than what we're experiencing right now? Yeah, that's right. True. So, point. I mean, 
yeah. So I, I feel like the the riskiest thing we can possibly do is constantly put all of our eggs in this corporate Democrat basket, which, you know, they're going to drop that basket. They're going to crush it. They don't care. They don't care. Their material conditions don't change. Yeah. Ours will either stay the same or continue to deteriorate. So I, I love that commentary. I think you're spot on. And, you know, I actually hadn't heard of that activist at all until now. And I think he's some sort of weird corporate Democrat plant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going through Rick Perlstein's latest book, uh, Reagan Land. And, you know, a lot of the analogy that we have for the confrontational approach, I mean, there's these examples on the right. One of them is um, the sort of Barry Goldwater revolution in the, in the Republican Party, of which the culmination was the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. In 1976, when Gerald Ford, who Reagan and the Barry Goldwater wing of the Republican Party basically saw as their enemy, like a liberal, like uh, just a, you know, like similarly analogous to what you're just talking about, like the Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, Mm -hmm. just so far different, so different from us that it's impossible to. Reagan refused to campaign for Gerald Ford in 1976. Like, I can only imagine, like, the reaction today if, like, he was the governor of California and, and, like, his star was rising big time. I mean, he he had, you know, passionate supporters. um, And he had he um, campaigned for Gerald Ford, maybe Ford would have won against uh, Jimmy Carter. Instead, Reagan refused. He was, like, not playing ball with a person who he saw as like a dangerous liberal and then ended up winning the presidency in 1980 and transforming uh, American society as a result. Yeah, for the, for so, the worst. Uh, obviously um, for the worst, yeah. Yeah, and, and look, one other thing you mentioned was um, Bernie's appeal to white working class voters in 2016 versus 2020 when that number had actually dropped considerably. Um, you know, you you had a great interview with Matt Carp on the day that I wasn't here. Everyone who missed that interview, please check it out. It was so good. And it's going to go more in depth uh, than what we have time for right now. But, you know, I am curious. Bernie f- faced a lot of pressure in 2020 to pivot more toward you know, the identity politics stuff. Uh, He's Mm -hmm. still, of course, focused on the issues that uh, matter to a broader range of people. Um, But I do think that that unfortunately um, hurt him with some of these white working class voters because it's more of the failed liberal, you know, BS that was intentionally meant to deflect from issues that actually impact people financially, economically, you get the picture. So I think that there's like... Even with the best left politicians, they sometimes cave into pressure from dishonest actors to pivot in a direction that's actually incredibly harmful for them. And so you need someone who's, um, and not just someone, you need a left that's fearless and unafraid of of the backlash they're going to get from the corporate Democrats. That that backlash is going to come. You should expect it, but you have to remain defiant as Ronald Reagan did. (laughs) So, yeah. yeah. No, I, I remember like in, in the wake of, of Bernie 2016, there was like the activist class, you know, who, who had supported Bernie were saying things like if Bernie, uh, you know, hires Jeff Weaver to be his campaign manager ever again, like, you know, it'll show that he never he never learned his lesson or whatever. And, you know, you know, actually, I think Bernie has probably better political instincts than all of you put together. But a similar thing happened to Jeremy Corbyn uh, in the UK, especially on, on Brexit, which was kind of like became kind of like a culture war social issue um, that we would mm-hmm. see here today. And he kind of caved to the pressure from his 
kind of more urbane base to flip flop on Brexit and run against it. You know, like, you know, everyone kind of knew that Corbyn in his heart does not like the European Union. You know, like that's just it's he's always been like that. And he kind of went against it and half heartedly kind of went along with this. And it was a disaster for him. Um, You know, they lost they bled working class support in, in the north. They their base is like basically all in in the south of England, around London. Um, and, you know, it was a disaster, like you said. Like, so the, the, you're right that, like, it does require a little bit of metal and an ability to sort of hold the line and keep the message ruthlessly focused on the class war, on the bread and butter economic issues. It doesn't mean you have to compromise on any policy or anything like that. You know, like, it's not like Bernie's going to support... I don't know, like the anti-trans bathroom bill just to win elections or something. It's just like you can just you can just ignore a lot of the hot button culture war issues and focus on the bread and butter issues that people actually care about. It's all about framing. Right. It's not to say that uh, Bernie isn't in favor of issues of regarding equality and uh, police violence and all that. But it's about framing your campaign in a way that's going to appeal to a larger group of people. And right now, regardless of what your political ideology is, you're experiencing the negative effects of capitalism in your day to day lives. You know, inequality, uh, unaffordable housing, the health care issue. I mean, it's. If you're a Republican, you're feeling it. There's no question about that. And so I think that's part of the reason why so many Trump supporters um, in, in 2016, after the election, spoke to the press and were like, yeah, yeah, I would have voted for Bernie. Bernie would have yeah. won. And it's because he spoke to the issues that really matter to them. So, yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Well, um, I want to make sure. Oh, Amber is going to join us soon. Uh, we're going to have an awesome interview after my segment um, that I'm really looking forward to. So let's get through my commentary and then get to the interview. Um, so Great. I personally can't stand the way online discourse follows news of some conservative living in California announcing that they're planning on leaving California because of how terribly the state is governed. Part of the reason why I can't stand the discourse is because as someone who was born and raised in Los Angeles, I've lived in Los Angeles my entire life, I can tell you unequivocally that this state is not managed or governed properly. It is a failure in so many different ways, and it makes me sick to my stomach to have to agree with people like Ben Shapiro, who recently announced that he is leaving the state of California. Um, He said so on Twitter, where he wrote, uh, we've been asked over and over and over again when we would leave California. The answer, now. See you in Nashville, gang. So he's going to move his company to Nashville. He also said, I lived my entire life in California. Within weeks, we'll be taking our 75 jobs and leaving. We're not the first, and we certainly won't be the last. Terrible governance has consequences. Now, I would bet that if Ben Shapiro and I sat down and we talked about the reasons why California is not governed well, uh, we would certainly disagree because what Shapiro and Joe Rogan and other people who either lean right or are full-blown right-wingers will say is that it's these progressive Democrats in the state of California that have completely mismanaged things. That's why you have such a high volume of homelessness. That's why we're seeing an increase in poverty. That's the reason why we have these wildfires that seem to be unmanageable. But the fact of the matter is, Democratic lawmakers in California 
are really doing leftists dirty because as they parade around as so-called progressives, when you look at their actions, they mimic what you would expect Republican lawmakers to do. In case after case, uh, they have allowed corruption to rule over every issue that would have fundamentally improved the lives of people living in California, that would have created the housing necessary to ensure that we mitigate um, the impact of unaffordable housing, of homelessness, all of that. And I want to really make my case here with evidence. And a lot of this can really be, um, if you want to look at recent history, tied back to a decision that uh, corporate Democrats made in California not too long ago, and it had to do with defeating uh, an effort to pass single-payer health care in the state. So before I get to all of that, let me talk about how elections work in California, because while it appears as though the state is completely dominated by Democrats, people on the so-called left, the truth is the way our elections work in this state create two different types of Democratic candidates. And more often than not, it is the Republican-like Democrat that wins and then implements the same types of policies that Republicans would implement in any other state. So um, as Politico wrote, in modern California politics, the cult, the critical fault line isn't between Democrats and Republicans. It's between Democrats, thanks to an election system that allows two Democrats to advance out of primaries and collide in the general election. So think about our system of government. Think about how bribery has been legalized. And if you are a business leader or if you are a CEO or an executive at a major corporation and you see that there are two Democrats facing off in any type of local race, you're going to want to fund one of them. And you're going to go for a more moderate candidate who's going to be persuaded by that cash more than what's in the best interests of constituents. Before 2011, when the state replaced party primaries with a general primary, after which the top two vote getters square off in the general election, establishment-backed Democrats running in safe seats could often sail to assured victories. Now they often find themselves fighting for their political lives against a rival from their own party, often Oftentimes, a rival that might be well-funded compared to um, someone who leans more to the left, for instance. California now regularly sees battles between Democrats who differ on issues that otherwise would split along party lines. And that's incredibly important here, because while um, one Democrat might present themselves as a Democrat, again, what they're proposing, how they're funded, and what they plan on doing once they're elected closely mimics that of a Republican. So really what we're talking about here is the mislabeling of these politicians. And it really does hurt the left because then Republicans can point to these failed policies and tie it back to uh, Democrats tie it back to the left, especially if they, you know, present themselves as so-called progressives. So once you get the special interests involved, things get pretty ugly. Traditionally, conservative interests like 
the oil industry and charter schools increasingly court friendly Democrats, often by contributing money to a constellation of innocuously named political action committees that then spend millions on advertising. In districts where a Democrat win looks inevitable, the thinking goes, better to boost the Democrat who's likely to vote with you than a Republican who's likely to lose. So again, Republicans might be um, out of the picture But these business interests still exist, and they're still going to corrupt the more moderate Democrat to carry out the same policies that a Republican would. So um, political consultant David Townsend acknowledges that big business focuses all its funding and energy on electing moderate Democrats in the state. He says year in and year out, the business community, the healthcare community, the insurance community can look at all the scorecards and see where mods have been on the issues and on. Uh, trying to tamp down too much regulation. We don't have to do the sell anymore. Everyone totally gets how important the mods are. And they are because they do carry out the interests of executives, of corporations, of the the elite in the state. And that has consequences on issues that are really plaguing the state and, of course, this country, issues pertaining to inequality, for instance, that has been exacerbated by a number of issues, uh, especially the failures of the Affordable Care Act. So um, in 2017, uh, the California Senate passed SB 562. This was actually an incredible day in California because that was the state's single-payer bill. The Senate passed that in this state. And keep in mind, at the time and now, uh, the the lawmakers um, in California are dominated by the Democratic Party. Two-thirds of um, the state legislator, le- legislature is dominated by Democrats, which means even if they wanted to pass taxes, uh, they wouldn't have to worry about Prop 13 from 1978. They have enough votes to pass a tax increase, right? You need a two-thirds uh, vote in order to pass higher taxes in the state. They have the power to do it, but they don't do it. Um, it was an especially callous move, though, by the Speaker of the Assembly, Anthony Rendon, or Rendon, um, who decided to block the legislation, and he did not even allow for the California State Assembly to vote on it. Only a day earlier, U.S. Senate Republicans had revealed the first draft of their health care reform plan that would take insurance away from 22 million Americans, many of them Californians. This was a time to shore up support for those vulnerable residents of the Golden State, not leave them to the wolves, wrote the New Republic. So on a federal level, you have Republicans, you know, fighting aggressively to repeal the Affordable Care Act. That would negatively impact people in California, of course. But at the same time, you know that the California Senate has passed a single-payer bill. And as the Assembly Speaker, to block a vote on that bill is one of the most callous, disgusting things you can possibly do. Um, So Anthony Rendon is garbage. And he, uh, of course, is influenced by money, his donors, his funders. Sure, he's a Democrat by name. Sure, he pretends like he cares about progressive issues. But when push comes to shove, corporate Democrats like Rendon would much rather appease the people who pay him in campaign donations than do the right thing that would actually keep Americans healthy, safe, and more importantly, in a better economic situation. So um, 
Let me just note that right now, as it stands, about 70% of Californians are getting some sort of government aid when it comes to health care. So anyone who tries to make this argument that it would be too expensive for the state to establish a single-payer health care system, they're just lying. They're flat-out lying. It's the same ridiculous talking point that we've heard over and over again from corporate Democrats on a federal level. Also, polling at the time showed that two-thirds of voters in the state were actually in favor of single-payer health care, but that didn't matter. Since 2012, Rendon has taken in more than $82,000 from business groups and healthcare corporations that are listed in state documents opposed to the measure. In all, he has received more than $101,000 from pharmaceutical companies and another $50,000 from major health insurers. This is based on a piece that was written by David Sirota back in 2017. Who knows how much money Rendon has actually collected from these private industries since then? In the same time, the California Democratic Party has received more than one $1.2 million from the specific groups proposing the bill and more than $2.2 million for pharmaceutical and health insurance industry donors. Groups, by the way, opposing the single-payer measure have delivered more than $1.5 million to Democratic Assembly members since 2012. In all, uh, the 55 Democratic members of the 80-seat Assembly have received more than $2.7 million for, from donors in the pharmaceutical and health insurance industries in just the last three election cycles. So when Rendon had decided to kill that bill, uh, the California Nurses Association had this fun sign that I want to share with you all because it is an image of the California flag. You see the California bear on the flag with a knife in its back. And on the knife, you see Rendon's name because he did backstab Uh, California constituents, people who overwhelmingly wanted this legislation to pass, and more importantly, people who understood that single-payer health care passing in the state of California would actually solve a lot of the issues we have in this state, including inequality. So let me make my case on that. So if we had single-payer health care in this country, that would, well, I would want it in this country, but we're talking about the state of California. That would have um, a lasting impact on inequality, a positive impact. So, for instance, since the Affordable Care Act mandates that full-time employees must be given health care through their employers, what do employers do? They stop hiring full-time employees and instead hire part-timers so they don't have to pay for those benefits. In fact, they don't even hide it. Take a look at this video. And to further increase their profit margins, leading employers are pushing the limits even further. They parcel out hours and break up shifts. Germania's boss doesn't even try to hide it. Yeah, we have benefits. Yeah, we have to. You know, we, yeah. you know, we offer health insurance, but you have to be like a full-timer to get it. That's ah, yeah. number one. So you see companies are using like more and more part-time jobs? Yes, a lot of, yes, since we came out with this new health plan, yes, a, a lot of employment, I, I hire in part-time so they don't have to pay for the benefits. So one of the biggest problems that we're experiencing with jobs in, in this state, but certainly throughout the whole country, is the, you know, the lack of full-time jobs, well-paying jobs that come along with benefits. And I hate to say it, but the Affordable Care Act and the way that legislation was written disincentivizes hiring employees full-time. If you have a single-payer health care system that's taken care of by the government, 
employers don't have to worry about providing these benefits anymore. They don't have to provide healthcare anymore. They can hire full-time workers. The fact that people need to work three, four jobs in the state of California to make ends meet tells you everything you need to know about how disastrous Rendon's actions were in blocking that bill, like the coward, the feckless loser he is. And yeah, I'm using insults because this is the kind of stuff that infuriates me. And look, poverty is a big problem in California. In Los Angeles alone, for instance, there are 60,000 people living on the streets, okay? There are many people right now who have lost everything, including their homes, because of their medical bills. We know this. Here's a video that highlights uh, two individuals who had that experience. This is Picture Postcard California. San Diego is also one of the most dynamic cities in the country. Here, unemployment is practically non-existent. This dream lifestyle was once an everyday reality for Eric. He was a successful computer engineer, earning 7,000 euros a month. Today, at 53 years old, this man lives alone in his car. In his former life, Eric also worked a lot, 50 hours a week. But four years ago, he suffered a burnout and also problems with his heart. He could not work and received unemployment benefits for six months. And then... Nothing at all. I thought I could handle it. I thought it would get better. Um, but it, uh, it took a toll. And after several years of you know, just dealing with doctors and going burning through my savings, um, I ended up uh, basically burning through everything and, and was, couldn't afford to, to stay in an apartment any longer. I worked for DHL five and a half years. Lost a job, had a heart attack, ended up here. We have issues, like everybody do, but for the most part, we we're, we try to get everything together to keep a stable place. You know, <clears throat> try to keep the place clean. It's difficult, but we do it. So instead of helping uh, to ensure that Americans, Californians, don't face financial ruin due to medical bills, you know, so they don't end up out on the streets, they don't end up becoming another statistic when it comes to California's homelessness, Rendon and other corporate Democrats decided, no, 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 we're going to serve the best interests of uh, real estate developers, of the private healthcare industry, essentially do exactly what you would expect Republican lawmakers to do. Because really, their actions are the same as Republican lawmakers. The only thing is, they present themselves as these progressive Democrats, which then turns around and hurts us because Republicans can point to these failed policies and say, see, we can't trust these progressives. We can't trust these leftists. Look at California. It's such a failure. Finally, I, I do want to talk about something that's a, that's a side, separate from uh, the single-payer healthcare issue, and it has to do with the lack of housing. What we hear over and over again is that these zoning laws in California are disastrous. We need to deregulate zoning in California and build more housing. But I have a hard time believing that argument. First off, let's keep in mind that based on census data, census data, there, there are a lot of vacancies in Los Angeles alone. So, for instance, L.A.'s vacancy rate uh, varies by neighborhood. And in downtown L.A., it's cracked double digits, climbing to 14 percent in early 2019. 
Also, um, the U.S. Census Bureau estimates there are about 111,810 empty housing units in Los Angeles. By the way, many of them are in these luxury developments that have somehow been given all of these contracts when inequality continues to be an issue in the state, when people can't afford insanely expensive apartments, $3,000 for a one-bedroom in downtown LA, for instance. And so why are these decisions being made? Well, there was a big case. The FBI actually ended up um, arresting a Los Angeles city councilman by the name of Jose Huizar uh, because he was involved in bribery, extortion, and money laundering. He was involved in a pay-to-play scheme where he handed out contracts to real estate developers who then turned around and built or are in the process of building luxury property that, again, no one can afford. Also, there have been contracts given to uh, foreigners who just want to launder their money by building real estate that no one can afford here in California. Here's an example. It's something that I never would have imagined here in downtown as many um, high rises going up as I've seen in the last 10, 15 years. Some of the biggest projects, including the stalled billion-dollar Oceanwide Plaza, the Metropolis, and the yet-to-be-redeveloped Lux City Center Hotel, were all backed, according to public records, by foreign developers from China with deep pockets. Some gave local 300 laborers work, others haven't. Nine times out of ten, it's not a good thing for us. The Lux Hotel is a project Ernesto has been keeping tabs on. Plans for the $700 million development at 1020 South Figueroa in embattled Councilman Jose Huizar's district call for two high-rise buildings with 435 condos in one tower and a W hotel in the other. The developer behind the deal is Shenzhen Hazens of China. It passed through the city's powerful plum committee back in 2017. Move that item with no objection. No objections. Thank you very much. But Local 300 didn't get a seat at the table. We felt left out. It's a lot of work for our members. I mean, just look at how many towers and it's all port, what we call port in place. That's, that's a lot of work for our laborers. The Lux Hotel is one of the projects federal investigators are probing over alleged pay-to-play schemes involving city officials and real estate developers. So to blame the failures in California on leftist policies is flat out wrong. I think it's also wrong to respond to the Ben Shapiro's of the world with, good, leave the state. We don't want you anyway. No, but he's right when he talks about how poorly the state is being governed. He's wrong about why, but we need to accept the fact that these Democrats are not looking out for our best interests. They're not even looking out for the best interests of their own neighborhoods. They're looking out for their own financial interests and are easily corruptible, even as they see people living out on the streets, even as they see hardworking Americans, hardworking Californians suffer the consequences of their actions. They don't care. They never will. They don't represent our values at all. And I think we need to do a better job in messaging that so we don't take the blame for their failures, their corruption, and the fact that they're just absolute garbage in this state and throughout the country. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think I've stayed at the Lux Hotel um, like years ago. Uh, it sounds like the California Democrats are ripe for a confrontational approach, I would say. Yes, um, absolutely. You know, it's, it's such a classic example of like how the vote blue, no matter who, uh, is just a dead end. I mean, California is in many ways kind of the liberal dystopia. Um, it's, I mean, just go walk through downtown LA on any given day. It's, it, it really just yeah, feels it's like, terrifying. you know, 
Yeah, bougie rooftops at the Ace Hotel with like a giant homeless community living living right under it. It's 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 terrifying. I mean, this, that was great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, so let's let's switch gears. Um, Amber Frost has been super patient with us. Uh, she is our guest for today. Um, so Amber Frost is a writer and co-host of Chapo Trap House. Uh, she's currently co- completing her first book on the rise of social democratic politics post 2008 financial crisis. Hey, Amber. Hi, how are you? Doing okay. Hanging in there. Um, yeah. all right. Well, let's throw out the first question, um, because you wrote an excellent piece in, uh, the catalyst, Uh, called The Poison Chalice of Hashtag Activism. Um, It was relevant when you wrote it, but it's certainly relevant today, considering all of the hashtag activism we're seeing um, in response to BLM uh, and also now the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so you write about the failures of the activism in the essay, um, and you say, in the larger world, it's difficult to spot a victory or any lasting legacy of power among even hugely popular campaigns like Occupy Wall Street, Arab Spring, Black Lives Matter, Yes All Women, and Me Too. Occupy Wall Street fizzled, the Arab Spring flopped, George Zimmerman walks free, and police murders of black people have not decreased. So um, in the wake of RBG's death, um, we're surely going to see a lot of this hashtag activism. Why do you think that it, it fails? What's what's missing here and what can be done moving forward to kind of like learn from those mistakes? I think if you're talking about the way politics um, operates at a popular level, uh, there does need to be some kind of actual mechanism um, to enforce the demands of the people making them. Um, The Internet isn't that at all. I mean, it's just it's. A billboard. Um, I don't understand um, exactly the psychology behind people sort of refusing to, um, you know, accept that. But I think it has something to do with the fact that there there doesn't appear to be any other options. So as a result, they're like, well, this is the only thing that we have. So there must be a way to, um, you know, get this boat airborne. Um, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's just, it doesn't do anything. I, I don't even, it's sort of difficult to even articulate because it's so obvious at this point, given even, especially since Occupy Wall Street, like how, um, just ineffectual it is, uh, because the burden of proof should, in fact, be on the techno-triumphalists. They should, in fact, be the people who have to say, but look at what it did. Um, but uh, they, they sort of sidestep that. So I'm, I'm constantly left being like, okay, show me one thing. One thing where <laughs> this was a major factor. And it yeah, all very speculative. It's, it seems very, I mean, it's very much like the internet itself. It's very speculative. Um, its value can't be articulated. Um, it is a bunch of people, you know, speculating on what this might be worth one day when we figure it out. But it seems to be this bubble that just goes on and on and on because it's in everyone's head. I think it's actually yeah. worse than that. I, I worry. Sorry, Nando, just to respond to what Amber said. I, I think it's worse than that because I think that 
the hashtag activism has substituted um, real organizing that needs to take place. And, you know, I don't remember where I read this exactly, but someone was talking about how, um, biologically speaking, just simply posting about this stuff triggers the same part of your brain as actually going out there and organizing and getting something done, you know? Um, so I, I worry that, you know, everything has kind of moved to this like online activism that really does take away from more organizing that needs to happen and the work that needs to take place on the ground. I'm not, I've heard that argument before and I understand the reasoning behind it. Um, I'm not totally on board, mainly because you're talking about something that, yes, it definitely does give people a sort of high. I mean, there is like a physiological response to just posting um, when you see all of those, uh, you know, likes and retweets. Um, The idea of it substituting activism, though, is implies that these people would be activists without the internet when in fact there's no medium for them to do that there are no institutions for them to plug into um Mm -hmm. i do think it's important to think of the internet as more of a symptom um rather than a cause uh nonetheless it it does reinforce our worst habits um so in the piece i i referred to another piece i wrote where I compared it to drug use. And, uh, and I've, I've told this story before, but it's like, I have a friend who does meth twice a year. She, uh, she sends the kids off to the grandparents uh, for the weekend. Uh, she does meth and she cleans her whole house. So she's never had a problem with meth or any drug. She's a very happy person. She has a nice life, a good marriage. Uh, she likes her job. She's financially secure. That is her relationship to drugs. That is her relationship to um, something that is largely considered, um, you know, you do it once in your life is over kind of drugs. Um, because your relationship to drugs is very much mediated by your context. I think the internet for happy people, if the internet was populated by happy people, would not be the sort of destructive force that it is. Um, I think that uh, there's a there's a world out there where the internet is a fun and wholesome and harmless pastime for well-adjusted people. But the fact is that People are suffering. They are in decline. They are alienated. They are atomized. So the internet is what meth is to a lot of miserable people. Um, It's really more about um, the context of um, the people that are using it than the actual machinery itself. Um, That said, you're not going to be able to like fix it by like, tinkering with the internet or, or, you know, democratizing the internet or, or changing the platforms. Cause it's like what you're putting in there, the, the human content is miserable, desperate people. And you're just never going to bake a yummy cake with that. I think my, I think my relationship to the internet is much like your friend's relationship to meth. Uh, I think I can, I, I think I can deal with it, but I, I see so many people in my life who like cannot deal with it. And I'm like, just, yeah. 
Well, there's also people who are like, I can handle it. I'm the one person who could handle it. And it's like, well, maybe you're happy and well-adjusted. But the thing is, when you go in there, you're surrounded by unhappy and poorly adjusted people. So I think some of the few people I know who, like, enjoy Twitter are like, I only do basketball Twitter. And, like, a lot of them have backed away from it now, too, because it has become so politicized. But they're, like, literally sports Twitter or car Twitter, I guess there is. Like, very technically specific things are some of the only, like, kind of very siloed areas where you can go in and have an interest and interact with people who have that similar interest and... No one's trying to get anyone fired. And there's no, there's no tempest in a teapot every week. It's just like it's so specific that, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and 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 the people who are making time for it are just like, yeah, I'm a dad from Philadelphia, and I really love the Sixers. <laughs> yeah, for me, that's uh, Spanish soccer Twitter. I think all my followers get very confused when I like rant about like some random player yeah, in yeah. La Liga. But uh, but you talk about like in Twitter specifically, like I remember when the Arab Spring happened, there was a ton of talk about like this is the the Twitter revolution and this is like going to be the way revolutions are waged in the future. If anything, that moment, it made the most sense, not because it was early, but because a lot of the problem was or a lot of what people identified as the problem was um, a lack of sort of media transparency. Right. Yeah, it was like a, a, a an actual like a bulletin board, like you said, like to to get people uh, in, in, informed about what was going on. But you talk about in the piece how how few people, at least in the United States, are on Twitter because I mean every single journalist that I've ever known uh, is now like basically full time on Twitter. But a 2019 uh, Pew Research Center study found that only about 22 percent of American adults adults use Twitter, and they tend to be younger and more progressive than the average American. Moreover, about 80 percent of tweets are produced by 20% of the accounts, meaning a major- the majority of activity on Twitter comes from a very small and ever-shrinking number of highly active user- users. You continue, in February 2019, Twitter publicly announced their active user numbers for the first time. For previously, the, the company only publicized their user growth, a percentage that was said to be padded with bots and dead accounts. After their grand reveal indicated a much smaller and still shrinking base, they decided to no longer inform the uh, public about their platform's numbers. So there's like, I mean, there's just like a thing that li- like some annoying libs like Mandy Iglesias always say, like, you know, Twitter is not real life, but, but maybe there's something to that. I think that's like when people say, you know, the internet isn't real is this, um, it's like this very like strange kind of, it isn't real in the way, I mean, if you want to go all uh, Karen Fields about this, like, well, Race isn't real, but racism is real. Um, right. the, the, the constructs that we built around these myths are, in fact, incredibly real and have major repercussions. Um, but, yeah, nobody's on Twitter. <laughs> like, and, and, of course, they're playing it. You know, it's. Uh, I think that might end up being just, um, for at least the foreseeable future, the trajectory of social media is that it's going to cycle people out, particularly because people want different things from the internet, depending on, depending on their class position, depending on their age. I mean, like old people like Facebook, millennials like Twitter, because it, especially because it allows them um, initially because it allowed us anonymity and 
for people who came over initially, it was, um, you know, Twitter was like a, it's like a writing exercise. It was like a joke writing exercise in brevity and you could be anonymous and people would work their shitty day jobs and, um, you know, have a place to post now, um, because of these kind of, uh, you know, the hashtag activism thing and the way that's been sort of absorbed into the, the broader media, um, it's become like LinkedIn for journalists. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's worse than LinkedIn because they're constantly expected to give takes and press releases. And it's worse than like the crawler at CNN. Remember when they introduced the crawler after 9-11 <laughs> and like everything had to constantly be updated and it's like, yes. well, now human beings, like actual like journalists and writers and commentators are expected to be to give like press releases for every ridiculous thing that happens online. And uh, absolutely. It's been I say I, I, I wouldn't say that it has been the cause of a kind of um, a counterproductive. Uh, activist culture it has however played a major role in um exacerbating the kind of deceleration of any kind of like media accountability any kind of sense of uh what journalism is i mean it let's be honest it was already collapsing um it's pre i mean it's been collapsing since television basically but um but I mean, even pre-social media, just the internet offering things for free. Um, so now people are looking for a sort of cheap and easy way to um, keep a kind of news media economy going, which is now like crowdsourced from a bunch of amateurs on a, who are doing mm-hmm. it for free. On a, it's just, it's very dystopian. Um, it's definitely totally. been bad for, I mean, you know, people get mad about fake news and uh, Trump lying. And it's like, will you get your news from Twitter? I mean, there's a broad, yeah. there's a broad um, crisis of trust um, in this country. And the fact that people get, you know, dumb conspiracy theories or insane ideas from Twitter or Facebook. I mean, it's not, it, it, it's understandable. Like you can judge it all you want, but like, Think about how many of the of the you know legacy media supported the Iraq War just like unquestioningly. Um, nobody mm-hmm. trusts anything. Everyone goes into this big room where everyone is yelling and tries to uh, glean the truth from it. Yeah. Okay. So a few points. First off, um, I can't even begin to tell you how comforting it was to read uh, the stats from Pew Research indicating well, I live, that I live comfort. no but i know that you um actually did decide to get off twitter um so let me start off with like a personal question did you notice a difference in in your quality of life by logging off um well i actually am one of those extremely ruthless people who um doesn't i mean i get canceled like once every three months i guess that's the right way to do it <laughs> but if you're uh, not getting canceled on a regular basis you're not doing anything yeah. right like but uh i don't um 
it never really bothered me. My whole thing is like, what are you going to do? It's like, wait, my birthday, come get me. Like, I don't care because I, I never really had a, a job that anyone could fire me from. Um, so it wasn't so much. And I actually, I do think like the whole like public shaming pylon thing is toxic. It is horrible. I think the whole there is no cancel culture thing is cruel and gaslighting and mm. deeply unsympathetic to people who are mm. not as like cold and heartless as me. Um, <laughs> the main thing though, that I noticed from leaving social media and I, I, basically I left after again, it became sort of like LinkedIn for journalists because I remember when it was funny jokes, it was still, by the way, an incredibly mean, nasty place, but it was funny and it wasn't people taking themselves seriously. And there was a, there was a sense, I think maybe a healthier sense that like this, is not going to affect the real world. You know, we're talking shit as, as we would say back home. Um, when I left the main thing I noticed was my attention span improved a lot. And Mm. I, I had like a timeline that I realized after, after like a week, I, I was reading entire articles, not just skimming after like two weeks, I was reading the entire like newspaper I was reading like FT minus the market watch section. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I think like a month I like read Moby Dick. Like <laughs> it, it was like my ability to, and I've, I've always had a very kind of, um, you know, ADHD brain. So I thank God I didn't like grow up with the internet as a child because I mean, God knows that would have exacerbated it so much. We know very well that it's actually quite bad for your development to stare at screens and there's something physical about the scrolling and, you know, fundamentally like, you know, our our little neuroplastic children's brains are, are programmed to learn in a certain way. So um, I'm just so glad that I lived in some like hillbilly town where we couldn't get, anything with dial up for a million years. Um, because yeah, leaving the internet was, yes, it, it was also like nice to not have to hear about just silly nonsense all the time and not be surrounded by hysteria all the time. But just on a personal level, it was genuinely, um, the, 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 the difference was pretty rapid my, my ability to uh, absorb, retain, and work through information was greatly improved. I, I want to go back to what you said about the uh, cancel culture because it, I agree with you that it, it, I find it genuinely bizarre that even a lot of people I generally respect, you know, kind of insist that it just doesn't exist. And I think that a lot, that those are people that maybe have never worked like in a newsroom. I, I don't know. Like I've, I remember when I worked in a newsroom, it was like that was such a mechanism to enforce orthodoxy right and it, it was they mm-hmm. like they kind of used the like woke canceling to enforce 
orthodoxy. But the but the flip side of what happens on Twitter, and, and it was like a, a quote in your piece that that really struck me, is 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 almost that there's like that going on, and then the exact opposite, in which because you're surrounded by such like-minded people, you think like the revolution is around the corner. And you write that despite the fact that the left has lost every major battle since the civil rights movement, the internal culture of American leftists remains curiously plagued by a delirious revolutionary triumphalism accompanied by sunny denial. Right. Can you expand on that? Like, what's the problem with that? Well, I mean, like, again, that's something that's often very endemic just to sort of youth politics uh, more broadly. Um I'm not sure that um, you could say that it began and ended with the internet. Certainly there were a ton of, um, you know, leftists in the 60s and in the 30s in America who were like, the revolution is coming, and guess what? It never came. Um, (laughs) Nonetheless, you never, you don't see the rapidity. You, You never, it was at least based on like, legitimate things it was um it or at least single identifiable things and with the internet particularly with twitter it's like oh this week it's occupy wall street it's it's going to be a revolution this week it's ferguson this week it's black lives matter too even though it didn't work the first time maybe this time it'll be different um this week it's the women's march uh this week it's it's just Everything, everything is about to be the revolution. Mm. So I don't know that that's the sort of triumphalism of leftists, um, particularly young ones. Um, you know that's not new, but the rapid turnover of every like few months, there's a new thing that's about to be the revolution. That and and it has and it's not purely left either. I mean, it goes into the um, it goes into the right. It goes into that's how you that's how you know the internet is a factor because the right is doing as well. Um, right. You know the the right. You know, saying this is going to be like a remember during Trump, all the kind of like predictions they had for the way he's going to like change change America and throw Hillary Clinton in yeah. jail. And the liberals currently yeah. remember the impeachment stuff. They're like, it's all happening every day, every day. Everyone is like, it's all happening. But really, nothing is happening at all. We're kind of in a in a stasis. What's happening is that we're continuing, politically speaking, the general trajectory of Obama, sort of like a downward, a slow, gradual downward, um, you know, misery path. Um, and maybe it speeds up sometimes and there are little dips here and there. Um, and there are more visible, uh, major, um, there are quite a few more visible major kind of like activist moments. Uh, but mostly it's kind of on autopilot. Um, mm-hmm. Twitter's just sort of watching it. Yeah. I remember the Billy Idol quote. You know, he's like, in the 70s, we were all punks, like, screaming our face off, and then Margaret Thatcher... Yeah, all that screaming and Thatcher still got in. Yeah, whatever, yeah. Uh, Yeah, nothing changes. So, you touch on the, you know, 
kind of like the incentive structure behind the nonstop posting, um, how people have kind of made careers out of it. Uh, you write hyper entrepreneurialism is not uh, not only a feature rather than a bug of social media activism, it is the native fauna of liberalism online. Online is where it thrives and with far more resilience than any movement attempting to build a social base with hashtags. So it kind of goes back to what you were also talking about. Um, you know, something happens and all of a sudden anyone who's even remotely tied to the media feels like they need to put out their hot take, you know? Um, And there's like, it's almost as if people's material needs depend on it. And it personally drives me crazy because that's when people react out of emotion and post the dumbest stuff. That's not helpful. It's not productive. So can you talk about that a little bit? I've never posted a dumb thing. Never. (laughs) I mean, I've certainly posted dumb things, but I, you know, when RBG died, I mean, yeah, you go on Twitter and everyone's like losing it, posting like some of the most ridiculous stuff I've read. I wouldn't know. I know. I know. That's why I think I'm going to go your route. I think you're doing it right. Um, I mean, good if you want to like pull your hair out. Sure. Uh, I'll have to talk about about it on the podcast later, which is going to be interesting because with like a lot of, because I'm on a, like a, you know, sort of talk comedy uh political podcast and a lot of uh what they talk about now i have to say okay translate this to me because (laughs) i read the news i'm not on twitter um Mm. so what you're talking about is a very micro world i don't think it's totally irrelevant to politics because it certainly reflects a kind of like uh, a highly um, active, you know, political um, uh, subculture of kind of professional managerial elites. But at the same time, its influence on the world is, um, let's say, very difficult to measure. Mm. Uh, yeah. Anyway, sorry, I lost my train yeah. of thought. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think you're right in that it's difficult to measure. And I think you're also right that it's a small group of people who tweet incessantly. Um, their hot takes are endless. But those tend to also be the same people who get invited onto CNN or other cable news networks to share their expert punditry. Um, so it, it, it does yeah, snowball. And that, that phrase I, is so disgusting, too. Expert punditry. Like, right, the whole idea of a pundit is that they're a dilettante. And I don't mean that as a insult i am a dilettante i assemble a lot of different um you know ideas of interest to come up with an opinion um that is not particularly expertise based um the the opposite of me politically speaking would be like a wonk or mm. someone like uh you know matt iglesias who who believes himself to be something of a numbers man uh rather than a broad strokes guy um, but yeah, I mean, I think the thing I would say is that Twitter is better at, uh, creating careers than it is about creating social movements. Believe mm. me, I know. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I think that that's a, probably a good place to, uh, wrap it up. I mean, Amber, if you want to stick along, we're going to make fun of some stuff. Um, or if you need to leave, we understand, but, uh, um, you know, happy to have you on or happy uh, to sure, say goodbye. Yeah. Great. Um, Amber, uh, sorry, Anna, you want to do the, you want to throw it? Yeah, the salt let's do segment? it. Yeah. 
So our daily salts, um, daily, um, our weekly salt segment today is on foreign policy and the mm. stenographers that get employed by legacy news outlets to simply like regurgitate uh, what members of the intel community tell them. And it's been damaging, uh, especially when it comes to garnering public support for wars we shouldn't get involved in. But luckily, people were a little skeptical of this reporting, and now we have an update. So a few months ago, we heard about how the Russian government was working with the Taliban and offering (laughs) bounties to kill U.S. soldiers. Now, anyone who did a yeah. yeah anyone who did a critical reading of that New York Times article uh, would understand that there was no evidence that it was based on a few anonymous sources from the intelligence community, and that if you knew even a little bit about foreign policy, what's happening in the world, uh, the Taliban does not need an incentive to go after U.S. troops when they consider <laughs> the United States as an occupying force in Afghanistan, right? So it just seemed like a strange story. I didn't just trust it or, or, you know, take it at face value. But now we have some updates, okay? Turns out that some generals are speaking out and they're saying, "Mm, no, we haven't seen any evidence of this. So as General Frank McKenzie says, and he is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, it's It just has not been proved to a level of certainty that satisfies me. (laughs) We continue to look for that evidence. I just haven't seen it yet. But it's not a closed case. So he's still, you know, thinking maybe there's a possibility. (laughs) Right. He also says, I found what they presented to me very convincing or I'm sorry, very concerning, very worrisome. I just couldn't see the final connection. So I sent my guys back and said, look, keep digging. So we have continued to dig and look because this involves potential threats to U.S. forces. But look, the point is, it's been months now. They've been investigating this and they can't find any <laughs> evidence of it. To which, you know, my, my main question is, what evidence did these intel sources provide to the New York Times that was so convincing that the New York Times decided to just simply regurgitate Um, as stenographers, what these intel sources were telling them. Of course, there wasn't any evidence provided, which for me, this is honestly more a critique of, you know, the news sources that people have come to trust who have trusted these news sources for, for decades. And, you know, it goes to a point that you made earlier, Amber, about how the public at large just doesn't trust the press anymore, which is why it really does make this issue of fake news incredibly murky. In a world where nothing seems to make sense, why not believe the QAnon conspiracy theorists, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't, but I I understand maybe the reasoning behind someone who would uh, be more trusting toward an online poster versus the New York Times or some other legacy media outlet. Well, and I think particularly when you've been lied to over and over again, the person you're inclined to listen to is the person saying they're lying to you. Because he's not fucking wrong. Sorry. No. Like, um, his alternative to, uh, his alternative history or alternative narrative uh, may be completely insane and rely on lizard people, but He's starting from the first thing that you know to be true, that every, you know, major legacy publication uh, refuses to acknowledge is that big media is lying to you. And they are. They are. Like, so 
again, I, I really don't think I, I, I do believe that, um, whatever the media, that doesn't exactly mean anything. That's a very broad term. You can say the legacy publications, you can say, um, you know, the New York times is a stand in or a metonym or whatever, but it's their fault that everyone believes yeah. in QAnon. Yeah, and and no, real quick, I, let me make a quick clarification because I mixed up titles. So Frank McKenzie is actually the one who oversees troops in Afghanistan. Hmm. Mark Milley is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he also agrees that there has not been any evidence to prove that Russia hmm. is funding the Taliban to go after U.S. troops. Just wanted to make that correction. Go ahead, Nando. No, what drives me crazy about this story, I mean, first of all, it was just so, I mean, the timing of it was obviously very suspect. It was like when Trump was kind of pushing to remove troops from Afghanistan, all of a sudden this thing drops. And then just all the liberals who love to cosplay as these kind of like, you know, the generals who like push the, the troops on the board with those, those little sticks. And they're like, yeah. can you believe that our commander in chief, uh, you know, like in the, in the grand game of geopolitics is not responding to such a threat from the Russians. And it's like, shut up, just shut up. No one. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, no one believes you that you like. It doesn't ring true to anyone. Like you're never gonna win points for being like the tough guy who uh, you know is gonna willing to stand up to the Russians. You know, it, it just drives me absolutely crazy. They tried this too pretty recently. Do you remember like the Norwegian like tanker that got like, yes right? Can you believe that they? The, the Iranians blew up, yeah. you know, they, they're, they're, they love to do like the Strait of Hormuz. They're, they're, yeah. they're clocking up the shipping lanes on the Strait of Hormuz. That's how like, a, that's, oh God, they're the worst. It was a fascinating thing too, because it's like, as if we care about Norway, <laughs> <laughs> they're, they have oil, but they're not giving any of it to us. So like, there's like, we have no interest in Norway. It was just like any way we could wedge ourselves into a conflict and mm-hmm. um, any way that we could, you know, use some kind of a, a, a moral justification for war intervention, uh, military action that made sense to liberals in terms of like the good war, um, kind yeah. of narrative but you know in, until another fascist takes starts taking over all of europe or you know, <laughs> states try to secede like sorry I'm, I'm i'm against i'm against all the wars preemptively so yeah i don't care about norway i'm sorry they seem lovely um but that sounds like a, a norway problem Yeah. And also, I mean, look, I I think that this has ramifications for foreign policy, certainly. But um, it's it's this electoral politics strategy that Democrats have been trying to employ, um, certainly in the Trump era, right, where they want to find any and every way to attack him as opposed to providing policies that actually would appeal to voters. It's like, oh, no, we don't we don't want to actually do something to improve people's lives. We just want to make the other guy look far worse than we are. So let's make him look weak. Let's basically try to goad him into starting a war with Russia over these unproven claims. I mean, I don't remember how many weeks, but this was like the top story on MSNBC. Why hasn't he held Russia accountable? Why hasn't he held Russia accountable? And it's like, what do you people want? Do you really want to engage in warfare? What does it mean? Anytime it's anyone says ridiculous. hold someone accountable, it, it's either someone uh, saying that someone made a bad tweet in 2007 uh, mm. or it's a like 
the president should bomb Iran. Like, it's like, well, I know. let's stop using euphemisms here because I don't know what accountability, that's, that means nothing. Yeah, like, you know, we're going we're gonna to sternly condemn them in the UN or something and, and everyone's going to be like, you know what? That's yeah, right. Those Russians, they did them. Ruler? Like, what do you mean? I mean, it, it, it's also because we have such a, um, you know, whatever, a, a, a global knot of an economy. The idea that um, our policies or our relationships with various countries are determined by um, some kind of like, you know, kind of a standard of like li- like liberal democracy that we all hold everyone to, rather than you know trade and uh, you know like global finance. It's absurd. Like that's that's not even we don't care about um, the wars or human rights violations of countries we benefit from or who, who are client states of countries we benefit from. We don't even care about the human rights violations of people in our own country. I think I think that's part of the reason why public support for like wars that supposedly spread democracy. Everyone knows it's a lie. I mean, come on. Yeah, um, you I, know, I think we just knows it's a lie, and I think most of the liberals know that it's a lie too. At least the liberals that are really you know rattling the saber. Um, so I'm not sure that they know that they're playing to an empty theater. Is the thing? Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't land the same way that it used to, uh, for sure. I mean, and 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 like this, this point about the you know how interconnected the the global economy is. I mean, when you're seeing kind of like saber rattling against China and like strong condemnations of whatever's going on, like Uyghurs and stuff. You know, like first of all, they don't give a shit. But second of all, like it's like what are they going to do? Like they're going to tank the U.S. economy by like putting on like a trade embargo with China. You know, like it's like it would collapse. Uh, like everything over here, and, and especially there's too many people in the in the ruling class who have like a self interest there, and it was, it's just never. So I, I just don't even understand this kind of um, posturing uh, on that front. It's like, what are you gonna like? What are you gonna do? Like, what are you seriously gonna do? And it's, the answer is nothing. Yeah, they make well, all the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> they make all the stuff. We stuff. can't make stuff. We yeah. we can't make a freaking mask. They're making it yeah. for us. What are we gonna do? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we're out of time. Um, Kale, uh, I don't know if we have any super chat questions or if you want to end with anything. Um, I don't even know if he can join us since we have three people mm. here. Mm. Uh, keeping off Kale. Yeah. Right, well, with that, I will allow Kale to go on. There, right, there okay. he is. All right. Okay. Uh, Hi, Kale. Hey, everyone. <laughs> Good to see everyone. I've been seeing you for hours, but let's pretend like I just saw you. Um <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's no super chat. You look great, questions. by the way. Thank you. It's, um, yeah. let me dial it up a little more. There you go. Um, oh, God, I need one of those. We all need them. Nando, too. Um, yeah. although Nando, you have, like, this heavenly glow coming in. Yeah, you look very beatific. Yeah. I know. Yeah. He's painted yeah. in plaster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, yeah, people have questions. People want to submit super chat questions. Uh, we can take them now. Um, yeah. Kale, do um, you have a question? Do I have a question? Yeah. You're a very inquisitive man. 
you know, I, there's multiple people asking me about Bedhead, and I got a very rude comment recently uh, <laughs> um, about uh, when we did the episode with Jen Pan. You stuff one of these? Oh, yeah. Fine. It's great. Yeah, just the, it's like, um, like, what is it, the Homer Simpson meme where he's, like, skinny because he's pulled everything back, and it's just the same thing with hair. Right. Um, uh, okay. Um, I guess people are asking about SCOTUS and Supreme Court justices, and I guess just um, <laughs> our favorite thing, um, you know, still still weeping over passing. Um, but uh, <sighs> they're asking, would any of you be willing to bet that Trump appoints a new Supreme Court justice? Um, I mean... Yeah. yeah, I would. Yeah, he's going I think to. The good money. He's going on that. to, yeah. and uh, th- that person will be confirmed, and we will have a conservative-dominated yeah. Supreme Court. That's what's going to happen. Uh, anyone who thinks otherwise is insane. Like absolutely yeah. delusional. What are Democrats going to do? Really? Yeah. I mean, we heard from you know Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, and they're alleging that they're not going to vote to confirm anyone until after the election. Whatever. They're both full of shit. Both of them have uh, you know. Sp- spoken out against Trump, like issued strong words condemning him, and then they vote with him. Every they held single him accountable. Time. I don't they Yeah, held yeah, they held him accountable. Strongly written letters. Yeah, exactly. So uh, and I'm not saying this to be defeatist. I'm just really keeping it real. This is what's gonna happen. Yeah, and and I would say too that um uh there's a very good article in Jacobin, I, I can't remember Ugh, I hate it when I do this. But basically, it was about the obsession with the Supreme Court being sort of a technocratic fix to politics, when frankly, the Supreme Court is fundamentally a, an anti-democratic uh, barrier to the kind of changes we want to make anyway. So I would say, like, yes, it's a pain in the ass. And yes, he's going to, like, put... Dracula or something on that. I mean, it's, it's going to be some cool count Dracula. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I might be able to deal with that. I think he's pro choice. <laughs> um, but, um, like, I think the idea that like, like I said, we're not like doomed. Like this isn't doomed, it, but it's like, no, this is another bad thing that's about to happen. Um, and I think yeah. the way to approach it is just to like, look, we don't have the Supreme Court. They're not on our side. They never were on our side. They're, you know, a barrier to democracy and the kind of country we want to live in. So, um, you know, they just are going to be a little bit more of a reactionary um, kind of uh, a force now. But it's not like they were ever something we could use. I mean, even the yeah. even the, the the stuff that people like laud Ruth Bader Ginsburg for. I don't think people understand that like this woman was just like a highly autistic, um, uh, relatively fair referee for a game with a lot of interpretable um, rules to it. I mean, when you look at a you know, Antonin Scalia, he's like, I, I believe in the Constitution. She's like, well, I believe in the Constitution. And they all say that they believe in the Constitution. Um, that's because it's a very uh, dumb and multi, you know. It's intentionally vague and up yeah, for interpretation. vague. And, and it also makes no sense in a contemporary, like, capitalist economy. Um, 
So I don't know. I, I, I think people are, are kind of past. I mean, the broader public is kind of past the whole idea of like, well, it's about upholding the constitution. Like, you know what? Literally who cares? I, I, I don't know any of those guys that wrote that thing. I, I, well, <laughs> well, what the constitution means to me. Is- <laughs> you know, um, the, the one thing that, the one thing that I've been thinking about a lot, and I think this is just, this is just true across the board for anyone who's thinking like, what, what are your next steps, right? Like, what can you do to kind of like minimize um, the awfulness that we're experiencing now and likely to experience um, in the near future? And so like, I've kind of gone inward and looked at like my, my immediate environment, like local politics. What is it about Los Angeles, for instance, that's really bothering me and like the lack of effective um, governance in this area. And so, like, I've actually been thinking more and more about organizing groups to go out and do simple things. Like, for instance, L.A.'s, like, completely given up on trash pickup. Um, and I'm not talking about picking up trash from people's homes every week. I'm talking about, like, there's litter everywhere. There are, like, beer yeah. bottles all over the place where I, where I like to go hiking. And I'm just like, I'm not going to wait for the city to pick this up. But I know that, like, my friends are irritated by this. Why don't we organize a group? So we're starting to get that you know, together. And those little actions do go a long way because once you like get a group of people together and you're doing things that are actually effective, you know, that can hopefully evolve into something bigger and greater. But going back to our earlier conversation, Amber, like I, I, I'm done with any notion that social media is, you know, an avenue in which you can actually get political change accomplished. Like you really do need to reach out to people in your community. You need to reach out to your colleagues. Um, you know, if, if you want to change your working conditions, you guys got to strike. You got to take action into your own hands, waiting for especially government officials on a federal level to do something for you is, is ridiculous at this point. Well, it's easier to strike too when we're all at work. <laughs> So, that's true yeah it's all turn up our zooms at the same time yeah know. yeah i refuse to i refuse to log into the zoom chat um it is it is yeah i mean we are sort of in a i'm generally by the way a very anti think small think local kind of person but in this moment it's all we got have a lot of options like right, right. Nothing is going to happen. And the way I've sort of um, put it to myself is like, look, the hysteria surrounding this presidential election, which is, by the way, completely out of my hands, is now none of my business. Uh, I will get back to politics when the elites, you know, fight it out and decide who they're going to coronate president. Um, until then, you know, I'm chilling, like call me when it's over. When we have, when one of the dumb old men is president, then I think we can regroup and start thinking about larger political projects until then it's like this massive cloud of smog that obscures every feature of like the American body politic. There's nothing to do until, I mean, also liberals, leftists, right-wingers, there's, a, there's kind of a mass social hysteria. And until yeah. until there is a new president, 
Like, no one is going to be able to coordinate around literally anything else. They feel like they can't. They feel like this is the end of the world. They feel like this is so urgent. And they can only think about this moment in history. So, yeah, call me yeah, when I'm, it's over. I'll get right. back to politics when one of the dumb old men has been, has been uh, elected president. Right, well, it's just yeah, it's the top 20% of, like, asset owners dragging everyone along with them. And yeah, we don't so, get to talk about anything else. Right. Yeah. And like, and I've gone into plenty of arguments with people over the past couple of years over really? like me. No, every once in a while uh, and rarely online. Um, so that means <laughs> that they're good arguments. Right. Um, and one of us won. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but over things like mass politics, mass organizing of, you know, massive efforts to go out and knock on doors Versus and like talk to people, invite people over to left politics or, for instance, like probably the most important thing is get people to come over to the Bernie Sanders platform and ideally vote for him. But, you know, then there's been alternatives of more kind of mutual aid, political organizing. And I think, you know, in most of those cases, I would say like the mass organizing, the the Bernie campaign and other things were by, you know, uh, I don't know, were way more important. They were these were the things that actually. Like, the way forward as right. opposed to um, the kind of uh, sustenance. Right. Um, yeah. now, right now there isn't a clear way forward. So exactly right now it's right. defense. It's like, you know, yeah, this it's, is- it's handing out water bottles to homeless people when it's like 120 degrees outside in LA. It's like, you know, of course, you know, like we should do that. Like, come on, you know, but like it, that is, that is just like, let's, let's just survive. Yes. This, like, right. Let's get through moment. this. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And that's and that's all to say that, like, do that kind of stuff right now. But then there will be there will come a time in the future for mass politics again. And we need to be ready to yeah. switch gears at some point. Definitely. But, I yeah. agree with that. Um, I guess one more question and I want to modify it slightly because okay. that's what I do. But um, tyrant, the mods are at it again. <laughs> um, there's only one mod on tonight or today right now um traditional media doesn't cover progressive issues fairly would m4a have majority support without social media would aoc have won can we try to use social media as one of uh, the many tools to help us and i also want to kind of the, the flip side of that is also to what extent does the media for instance drive the political outcomes of like sanders getting the amount of votes that he got or corbyn or i'm Throwing it, I, I can see you I, rolling, I, but that's the point. I, I, I'm getting upset. I'm getting very upset. Um, so, look, the media loves to believe that the media is the reason that politics happens. Mm-hmm. And it's not. It's people's material lives. The media has not... Con- what does that mean? Would social media have... Social media... Again... People who supported Medicare for All are mostly not on Twitter because most people are not on Twitter. Maybe it's not like what, I don't know, Rachel Maddow says that actually forms the majority of people's political opinions or positions. Maybe it's their lives and the fact that they can't afford health care. I truly hate this media focus. I truly mm. hate it. I hate it from the, um, from the, you know, we're the only thing standing between, you know, you know, whatever democracy dies in the darkness and 
you know, I hate that shit. I also hate the like the bastard media have convinced everyone that this or that. It's like, no, the only thing the media can and should try to do is clarify the reality of the situation. And without that, though, people are still going to have a broad sense of what's going on, at least in their immediate world. So it's just, and the AOC thing, I'm sorry, the election of AOC was not based on social media. That is insane. That is insane. Like, Queens, do you think all of Queens is on Twitter? Have you been to Queens? Twitter there hasn't gotten there with yet. Flip phones in Queens. Like, yeah. anyway. Uh, she did the work. She did the work. And Crowley thought that she wasn't a threat at all. He did no work. So that's yeah. how she won. She did the yeah. work on the ground. Yeah. And again, you know, the same thing Medicare for all. Like, it's what do you think? Like, people watch enough YouTube videos that they realize they couldn't afford healthcare? No, this is, these are people's lives. Like, I, this is ridiculous. It's insane. I think there's a very small number of highly active media producers and consumers. And those are kind of uh, the Venn diagram there is almost an eclipse. And so for them, they're like, oh, the media is navigating people's politics. It is steering the ship. No, it's not. Everyone hates the media and they should. (laughs) Everyone hates them. They don't trust them. They know that they lie. If they come to the conclusion that single payer is a good idea. It is maybe like a one in like a thousand percent chance that they saw a Michael Moore documentary. The other 9,999 people are like, shit, healthcare is expensive. This is stupid. Right. I mean, so I, Amber, do you want to host our salt segment moving forward? Yeah, <laughs> I feel like you're, that's a good you're better suited for it. <laughs> but Go ahead, I, I think that in, in, in the context of the Democratic primary, the, it's very clear to me, at least, I think anecdotally, I mean, obviously, like the, the, the size, the overall size of the cable news audience in the context of America is very small and most people hate them. And the, but there is this kind of hardcore minoritarian group of people um, who are like addicted to it. I mean, I know plenty of them. Um, including people in my own family, not to get too like, uh, you know, but uh, it's, it's, you know, and and that those people kind of are, are over index in terms of democratic primary voters. And so in that sense, it it had an effect, but I I think that the, the solution to that is not necessarily, I mean, we're not going to take over MSNBC (laughs) or anything like that, you know, to sort of change their tune on Medicare for all. Like, I mean, it goes back to like this coalitional versus confrontational pro, like you, you have to find a way to go around those people. I mean, those people are like addicted to, to, to this thing and they're not gonna, they're not going to give up their drug anytime soon. But like in the context of that. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. What they are capable of doing, I, I don't want to say that, like, you know, the media is has no influence whatsoever. I don't think that's true. Again, I think, I think actually, like, clarifying the reality of the world that people see around them is is an important thing. It's just that you know, you're not, you know, you're not starting a fire. Um, I think uh, the Corbyn campaign is probably a good example where. Nobody believed that Jeremy Corbyn, no, no Jeremy Corbyn supporters believed that he was an anti-Semite. But this smear that was passed around um, within, a, again, a very elite kind of um, uh, London um, party and media sort of coalition 
was that like, well, Labor does need to see. We, I, we, I like Jeremy, but Labor does need to see about his anti-Semitism problem. We do need to. I mean, maybe he's not anti-Semitic, but really, it's a broader problem with the party, and maybe we need to. And the people watching that who were Corbyn supporters were not like, oh, uh, wow, I wonder if he's an anti-Semite because they're not gullible rubes or cynics like a lot of the people who said, but, you know, we have to deal with labor's anti-Semitism problem. I knew very well that yeah, the Tories, let's say, have more of an anti-Semitism problem. Um, <laughs> but what they did do was sort of psych people out. They're like, because people know that the system isn't particularly democratic in the sort of broader populist sense. They know that if the elites are getting gun shy about Jeremy Corbyn, um, you know, if, you know, Guardian columnists and, um, you know, this or that beloved MP from Staffordshire upon who cares is like, you know, voicing their concern. They're like, okay, well, they're not going to let him have it. And it's not that they yeah. believe it again. It's, it's not that the media is capable of selling people wholesale lies very often. It's actually very difficult for them to lie to the public um, about someone's character that is so high profile. They can smear civilians very easily, but someone that high profile with a record, it's more difficult. What they did do was make the public believe that the fix was in. And that was kind of true. You know, afterwards, like it was all leaked that um, there was an internal party conspiracy to make sure that he lost because they would rather have a Tory government than a, a Jeremy Corbyn Labour government. So I think, if anything, it points to the fact that, like, people are smarter than the media more broadly. Maybe not an individual mm. person might no, have some ideas, I'm, uh... but the broader sentiment of people of, like, oh, look, they're going after Jez. They're not going to let him win. They weren't wrong. It doesn't mean that they believe that Jeremy Corbyn was an anti-Semite. It means that they knew that clearly the powers that be did not want him to be a labor leader. And that was, they were right. Right. That it's any given media outlet, any like even Tucker or Maddow or any of them have single digits outreach in the population, like uh, only a couple percentage points of the, of the American population watches these shows even like regularly or uh, semi-regularly. But all of those people are like highly tuned in and voting and they're most likely going to be a part more disproportionately going to be a part of that like top 20% that is like driving all of this shit forward all the time that we have to now just deal with because we don't have a left in this country to actually counterweight it, that we don't have left institutions. The spectacle fills the void of institutions. Yeah. Well, All right. Woo! What a darn note to finish. One time. Thanks for having me on. Amber, course, you're awesome. For, Thank you for coming, coming on. on. It was really best. a pleasure. Um, and everyone that's watching, thank you uh, for watching and supporting Jacobin. Um, and make sure you uh, subscribe to this YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jacobin Mag. And um, have an awesome weekend. Uh, try to keep your chin up during the week. And we'll see you next week. See you soon.